0: Greetings, comrades, and, uh... I'm saying you this because, uh... Welcome to eastern border, slightly more western than usual. Because, due to how my moving interactions happened... Well, it so happened that I was supposed to move at the middle of March, right? And I had everything set up with my new landlord and everything. Except that at the very last day... I got thrown up and uh, kind of cheated by stating that, well, no, my wife says you can't really just yet move in. Uh, you have to wait until the end of March to move. And, um, yeah, ended up pretty bad because uh, old landlady demanded that we move out. And the new landlady stated that we can't move in. So thanks to my buddy, Carlos Rotkovskis. Cool, literally, saved my ass, he called his dad, who owns a huge, by Latvian standards, with about 160 cows, farm in um, about the center of Latvia, in the region of Valmira. And, uh, well, the good news is that I uh, have a place to wait until I get back to a permanent location. Secondly, my audio setup is again terribly, terribly ruined by everything, and I had to do weird stuff to make all this work. And finally, is that so that I don't have to pay for this location? I am now working as a farmhand with cows. And I have never, never, ever done that really. Not on the scale that I'm supposed to do that now. And do you know that if you go to a box of cows and literally shovel the shit out manually and put in fresh hay then, well, that, uh, Kind of back-breaking labor, but I'm still here, and I'm still doing doing my series as best as I can. I am even outside of a city right now. It's um, it's literally in the middle of nowhere, uh, but I'll be back at the um, end of March, to a more permanent location, hopefully, hopefully. But t- today, as promised, because, you know, the last episode was a political one, this episode is going to focus, once again on the military tanks of the Soviet Union, but this time we will do it from an interesting angle, because the tank that we will be talking about, the tank series that we will be talking about, the uh, IS tanks, which is an anglicized version of Joseph Stalin tanks, yes, tanks named after Big Uncle Joe, are one of the more interesting things, because they're still being used, and in, um, well, let's just say not in a very... Moral way, and some of them are used as proof of um, Russian involvement with Ukrainian separatists. And we'll get to a uh, to a military analyst who who claims this fact with uh, with proof, obviously. But first, we gotta take a look at the history of the IS tank series and its details and everything. So, well, we'll do our best, and uh, episodes will be released. I am just a bit more tired. I think I sound a bit more tired, too. But, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll get physically stronger from all this farmhand work. It's a bit crazy. But, hey, if you live somewhere in a rural region and grew up in a farm or, or have done this when in a farm with a, with a lot of cows... These are milk cows, by the way. These are not for steaks and meat and everything. These are all for milking. I guess maybe some of them are for meat, but these are mostly Holstein cows. Yeah, please leave a comment on Facebook or Eastern Border page or our Twitter even. And uh, yeah, tell us about your experience because now, well, I'll have some studies to share. Don't forget to visit rusensoft.com. They are still our sponsors and they still give us a, a nice little kind of um, percentage if you buy from their store anything Russian and Soviet-oriented. And yeah, you can do that by clicking on the Rusensoft banner in the easternborder.lv uh, homepage, or you can go to rusensoft.com directly and just enter the promo code EASTERNBORDER at checkout. And, of course, well, greetings to Annette. I hope that this setup will not kill you, because... Oh boy, I am forced to sit in a box even smaller than usual, and it's um it's gonna be a crazy wild ride for the time being, but it's gonna be awesome. So, the Josef Stalin tanks, often abbreviated to just IS tanks, were heavy tanks that came out of Marshal Klement Voroshilov's KV-13 design program that we spoke about previously, and you know how that went, because the Russians wanted their super-heavy, hardcore tanks. The resulting design was obviously named after the Russian leader, Joseph Stalin, instead, of Voroshilov, because by that point, Mr. Voroshilov, the marshal, had fallen out of political favor, and, you know, his um, demotions and uh, other fun stuffs would uh, soon to follow. The IS-85 prototype was accepted for production with the new designation IS-1, but the primary weapon of 85mm caliber was considered too small. Thus production was limited while a better weapon was being selected. The IS-100 prototype with a BS-3 100mm gun was field tested alongside of an IS-122 prototype with an A-19 122mm gun and the latter proved to possess better armor penetration capabilities. Thus, the IS-122 prototype was accepted as the IS-2 variant. And, well, that was the first actual production variant. The few IS-1 tanks made were sent back to the factory and rearmed as IS-2 tanks. Now, unlike their predecessors, which were, well, slow and cumbersome and had a lot of issues, weren't really that awesome and that well-made, the IS-2 tanks were a bit lighter. They had learned from T-34 and its mistakes, but the armor was way better. It was shaped and focused more heavily in the front of the tanks. The A-19 guns had very good armor penetration capabilities, meanwhile... They were also capable of delivering large, high-explosive shells against bunkers and anti-tank guns. The blessing was, as it is usual with Soviet technology, also a curse. Because uh, the larger two-part shells, yes, two-part shells were difficult to handle, and thus they were leading to a low firing rate. The IS-2 heavy tanks entered service in April 1944 at the end of the war. Usually, 21 IS-2 tanks made up a regiment and were usually used largely as breakthrough tanks fighting at the spearhead of offensives. They were often charged with destroying fortifications and anti-tank guns creating holes in the German lines for the medium tanks and infantry behind them to exploit. Their thick armor was difficult to penetrate by the German 88mm anti-tank guns that, up until this time, were among the more feared weapons for the Russian tank crew. In August 1944, near the town of Sandomierz, Russia, now it's Poland, 11 IS-2 heavy tanks of the Russian 71st Guards Independent Heavy Tank Regiments defended an attack by... 14 Tiger II heavy tanks of the German 105th Heavy Panzer Regiment, which was the first time the two heavy tanks met. The result was that four of the Tiger II heavy tanks were destroyed as the Russians held their ground at the cost of three destroyed and seven damaged IS-2 tanks. In mid-1944... Some IS-2 heavy tanks were made with D-25T 122mm guns. They were dubbed as IS-2 model 1944. In late 1944, the IS-3 variant design was completed. And we'll get to talk more about the IS-3 because that's a very, very important tank. The IS-3 tanks had thicker front armor at 200mm compared to IS-2 tanks 120mm and new-cost turrets that lowered the overall height at the cost of limited working space within the turrets. By the time they entered production, Germany had already surrendered. However, one regiment of IS-3 heavy tanks might have participated as breakthrough tanks during the Operation August Storm against the Japanese forces in Manchuoko or Manchuria, which is now China. And now the study of the IS-3 tank, which is kind of the most interesting of all these tanks, is where, where the study gets um, a bit more murkier, because, you know, previously we've only been talking about the tanks used at basically World War II, but... Now we move to 1952. The IS-10 development program was completed, but was renamed T-10 due to Stalin's death in 1953. They had longer hulls, Seven pairs of road wheels instead of six. Larger turrets with a new gun with fume extractor, improved diesel engines and increased armor. And uh, yeah, these tanks in 1956, together with IS-3s, were used during the invasion of Hungary. In the mid-1950s, remaining IS-2 heavy tanks were upgraded and redesignated is IS-2M. The upgrade included the fitting of external fuel tanks on the rear hull, stowage bins on both sides of the hull and protective skirting along the top edges of the tracks. IS-3 heavy tanks were also slightly modernized as IS-3M. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, Egypt operated IS-2 heavy tanks against the Israeli IDF M48 Patton medium tanks. In the 1968, during the Prague Spring political liberalization period in Czechoslovakia, Russian forces entered, occupied the country with IS-3 heavy tanks, leading the invasion force, and, uh, yeah, the Russian occupation forces would remain until 1990. By the way, one of the interesting ways how the Czechoslovaks at that time... ...kind of um, fought back was that they used liquid soap to make sure the tank threads were slippery... ...and they also put up false road signs everywhere mixing up the logistics, which is an interesting tidbit. In the late 1960s, as main battle tanks made heavy tanks obsolete, in the prior decade... ...Russian heavy tanks generally were transferred to the reserve forces or to storage facilities. But IS-2 tanks operated by Cuba, China and North Korea remained in service for much longer... 3,854 IS-2, 2,311 IS-3, and 250 IS-4 heavy tanks were built in total. And interestingly enough, IS-4 was also known as the Object 245. Now, we will, um, interestingly enough, talk about how um, this whole thing moved through the history, and where, actually... It's still being used to this day. Yeah, for this um, next part, I'd like to credit, uh, as one of my main sources here, Shabaf Tevef, the tanks of Tammuz, Stephen Pressfield, Lionsgate, on the front lines of the Six Days War, and um, a paper by retired Major Jim Warford, whose served uh, with many battalions, and he was uh, commissioned in armor in 1979 as a distinguished military graduate from University of Santa Clara, and he has a bunch of degrees, and um, I'll be using his paper on the IS-3 tank, which um, basically is called Soviet IS-3, Stalin Heavy Tank, Importance of Getting Assessment Right. In June 2014, anti-government separatists in Ukraine decided to include an IS-3 Stalin heavy tank built in 1946 that was anchoring a Ukrainian monument to the Great Patriotic War in their struggle against federal forces. After some coaxing from local mechanics and the belching of a lot of smoke from the engine, the pedestal mounted tank started up. The IS-3 was driven off the monument platform and assume new duties with the separatists for six months or so. According to the separatist forces, the IS-3 was used in battle on June 30th, 2014. Eventually, Ukrainian federal forces regained control of the local area and recaptured the tank. This infamous IS-3 is now on display near Kiev at Ukraine's National Military History Museum. And, well, not very surprising to people who listen to my show and, in general, everyone who is familiar with the simplicity and the robust nature of Soviet air engineering when it comes to the military technology. Everything else can break down, but Soviets built their military stuff to last. The story of that reborn IS-3 Stalin tank brings the tank's performance and quality assessments to mind. And here... um James M. Warford asks, Were American-British and, ultimately, North American Treaty Organization intelligence assessments too critical of the IS-3? Was this impressive-looking heavy tank truly just intended for show and post-World War II propaganda purposes? More recent assessments of this popular tank confuse things even more by arguing that the Joseph Stalin Three has historically been apparently overrated. Eliminating confusion like that surrounding the IS-3, again, he states, must be a priority in today's military environment. As the world situation changes and continues to remind us of the Cold War years, success on the battlefield may depend on getting it right. The IS-3 heavy tank was first seen by the Western powers during the September 7, 1945 Allied Victory Parade, when 52 of these tanks rumbled through Berlin. The IS-3s belonged to the 71st Guard Heavy Tank Regiment of the 2nd Guards Tank Army. This new Soviet tank came as a significant surprise, apparently, to American and British leaders. A photograph taken during the parade highlighting a very concerned General Dwight D. Eisenhower may have been an indicator of things to come. See, the IS-3, to them, at that point, was a game-changer. The Soviets had developed a tank that was far more advanced than anything in the American and British arsenals. The message was obviously loud and clear, as everything Soviet made. This is our new tank. This is the first volley of the action-reaction tank cycle. And, you know, we throw the first punch. Now you show what you can do with your tanks. And, uh, yeah, let's take a look at the design here. Because the design of the Josef Stalin III, even by today's standards, well, was pretty impressive. The tank was built from the ground up to provide the best possible ballistic protection from all directions of attack. The new hemispherical turret and uh, something called Pike-nose Glacey were both heavily armored and so well shaped from a ballistic protection point of view that they basically eliminated any potential weak points to attack. The IS-3 was fitted with a very powerful D-25T 122mm main gun, which was well known by the end of the World War II as a proven killer of German heavy armor. The thing is, it also had this uh, very iconic Soviet tank ending top with exhaust fumes. The reaction caused by the appearance of the Josef Stalin III was significant, pushing Americans and the British to develop their own heavy tanks as quickly as possible to counter this new threat. The resulting heavy tanks, and you have told me that I should probably involve some other other tanks from other countries, because, you know, at one point I'll probably have to speak about Panther and Tiger and whatnot. But the resulting heavy tanks to respond to Josef Stalin III were the American M-103 and the British Conqueror tank. According to declassified intelligent reports from 1954 and 1958, key details regarding the Yosef Stalin III are included in the following. Supported to know that some Russian open sources have reported even thicker frontal armor protection than what's included here. Weight 46 tons. Crew 4. Engine 520 horsepower V 12 diesel. Speed 25 miles per hour. Armament well. Yeah, I told you about the hundred and twenty two millimeter gun, but it also had twelve point seven millimeter anti-air machine gun and seven point sixty two millimeter coax machine gun. And now we get to the armor. Glaces. As he's an American, he gladly provides inches here as well, not just the millimeters, so ha-ha, I can skip on the conversions. It's nice. It's nice to have someone professional providing more technical information for me, that I don't have to transfer myself. Glacis 4.7 inches, 119 millimeters, angled at 55 degrees, equals to 8.2 inches, or 208 millimeters. Main gun mantlet, 7.9 inches, or 201 millimeters curved, turret sides, 7.9 inches, 201 millimeters, curved, production, 45, 46, 2,310 produced, but again, numbers vary, and Soviet military documents are, well, quite difficult to find now and then. For the rest of the 1940s and 1950s, the IS-3 was photographed and paraded as often as possible by the Soviets, and reports were released to the public that highlighted the tank's participation in various Soviet Army exercises. As time went by, however, all this attention led to more information being learned by American and NATO intelligence organizations. This information included reports that the cutting-edge Soviet tank was suffering from important mechanical and structural problems. These ranged from production hull weights being stressed to the point of failing and engine reliability issues to a series of problems resulting from mounting such a large and heavy main gun in such a small turret. These problems may have been the deciding factor in the decision to end production in 1946. But Soviet man is a crafty man. We made upgrades hello there thank you for tuning in into another episode of the eastern border we are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com if you're looking to buy new art don't forget to use the code eastern border for a discount on us remember head over to russansov.com and happy shopping If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Discord. And, as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast... Brought to you by Russianvoiceovers.eu. Enjoy Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft, or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Soviets were very aware of the problems of their tank and launched a series of upgrade efforts for the IS-3 between 1948 and 1952. Perhaps the most significant upgrade took place in 1957, resulting in the improved and iconic Cold War version of the tank designated as the IS-3M. The tank's reputation, however, seemed damaged beyond repair. Prior to the fielding of the IS-3M, the IS-3's reputation actually went from bad to worse, in 1956 when its performance was assessed after its first conformed use in combat during the Soviet invasion of Hungary. On November 4th, 1956, the Soviet army invaded Hungary with 17 divisions to quote, smash the counter-revolution going on in that country. Codenamed Operation Whirlwind, Soviet forces quickly encircled Budapest, split the city in half and began attacking Hungarian army facilities. The Hungarian army put up mostly sporadic resistance. In fact, most Hungarian soldiers were loyal to the revolution and either deserted or fought with Hungarian resistance fighters. In some cases, the whole Hungarian army units refused to relinquish their weapons to the invading Soviets. Interestingly enough, participating in the fight against the defending Hungarians was not universally accepted by the Soviet forces in Hungary. According to a declassified CIA information report dated October 30th, 1956, quote, a sizable defection to the rebel forces is taking place among Soviet troops in Hungary, end quote. The assessment of the IS-3's performance during the fighting in Hungary is normally characterized as being very, very, very poor. For many observers, the dramatic photos of destroyed IS-3s, including a well-known photo published in Life magazine showing a number of coffins in the street alongside a destroyed IS-3 after a battle, provide all the information needed. The damage to the reputation of the IS-3 was now set, and performance assessments of the tank incorrectly judged it as a failure. The reality is that several factors that characterized the fighting in Hungary were not usually taken into account. Ranging from poor leadership and communication, which is, well... Yeah, the Soviet army is not really famous for having extra high quality top brass. And the minimized capabilities accredited to the resistance fighters. It's important to remember that these resistance fighters included Hungarian and Soviet army regulars. Finally, it's clear the Soviet army failed to use the tactics for fighting in urban areas that it had mastered during World War II. However, the resistance fighters knew how to defend and were masters of the Molotov cocktail. Ah, cocktail for Molotov, mind you, invented by the Finnish in the Winter War in 1939. Well, uh, they'll have a, a lot of issues in urban fighting later on when we get to the Chechen Wars in Grozny. A year before the invasion of Hungary... Events were taking place in the Middle East that would set the stage for the second combat use of the IS-3 that would be fought 11 years later during the Six-Day War in 1967. In 1955, open-source press reporting confirmed a significant arms deal was in the works between Czechoslovakia and Egypt that had the potential to increase tensions between Egypt and Israel to the breaking point. Although the weapons reportedly were coming from Czechoslovakia, the deal was part of a series of deals between Egypt and the Soviet Union. Worth about $62 million, the deal included small arms, anti-aircraft guns, aircraft, artillery, and tanks. According to a declassified report from September 1956, the deal included 170 T-34-85 medium tanks, 25 Su-100 assault guns, and 60 IS-3 M heavy tanks. Uh, The SU-100 salt guns are also a thing that I'll definitely mention. They are one of the craziest things built around there. The declassified October Fourth, nineteen fifty-five edition of the CIA's Central Intelligence Bulletin. I really like how they're just made like that. It's just amazing. Confirmed the arrival of the first armed shipment and included the following. Egypt's acquisition of heavy tanks when made effective by training in their use will introduce a new element into Middle Eastern military tactics, since neither the Arab states nor Israel has hitherto had equipment of this caliber. Interestingly enough, according to another declassified Central Intelligence Bulletin, I... I love when something is just called Central Intelligence Bulletin, it's just great. Dated May 26th, 1956, a conversation took place between the Soviet military attaché and the American army attaché in Syria. Hey, there's something familiar about uh, Russians and Americans talking in Syria. About stuff happening there. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder why I wonder why it hits something in my head, yeah. The Soviet officer stated that, while the T-34 medium tank was suitable for use in Syria, he was opposed to Syria receiving the IS-3M heavy tanks and had so recommended. He added that the Syrians would be better off fighting on camels than in tanks. However, the Egyptians, like the Soviets at the end of World War II, were happy to show off their new IS-3Ms and Life magazine. I like how Life Magazine just provides stuff about war uh, and death. It's just great. They provided extensive coverage of the IS-3Ms as they were first paraded through Cairo, July 23rd, 1956. The breaking point in the Middle East was finally achieved in June 5th, 1967, when the Israeli Air Force launched a series of very successful airstrikes against Arab airfields, giving Israelis almost complete air superiority from the beginning of the Six-Day War. Israeli tanks from the M.G. Israel-Tals division attacked quickly into the Sinai desert into the heart of Egyptian army defensive positions. In the key battle fought at Rafah Junction, the Egyptian 7th Army division was supported by the IS-3M heavy tanks. The Israelis were very aware of the Egyptian IS-3Ms and considered them very dangerous opponents. Authoritative Israeli references on the Six-Day War include several instances where IS-3Ms were described using words like "quote the most heavily armored tanks ever built," "World War II monsters," and simply as being "bloody terrifying." Some translations of these battlefield accounts from Hebrew to English also identify the Egyptian IS-3Ms as um, "Stalinists." The fighting in the critical Rafah junction area can be characterized as a tank versus uh, tank with Egyptian Stalinists facing off against Israeli, United States-made M48 Patton tanks. The Israeli plan of attack was designed specifically to avoid a toe-to-toe frontal fight with these IS-3Ms and their main guns and thick frontal armor. When the battle was finally over, most of the battalion of IS-3Ms in the Rafah Junction area was destroyed by the more modern and more maneuverable Israeli tanks. The Israelis suffered significant losses too, including several of their M48s destroyed by IS-3M main gunfire using the Soviet armor-piercing ammunition dating back to 1945-1947, and the loss of their most decorated soldier in the Israeli army, Captain Nehemiah Cohen, I hope I pronounce his name correctly. The assessment of the IS-3M's performance during the fighting in the Sinai is normally characterized as very poor. Like the assessments following fighting in Hungary in 1956, the IS-3M's performance assessment from the fighting in 1967, was heavily and incorrectly influenced by a few key photographs taken during that conflict. Many observers cite well-known photographs that show destroyed IS-3M with its turret blown off and another of a rusty and mostly sand-covered IS-3M in a desert as a confirmation to the tank's poor performance. However, assessing the tank's performance during the Six-Day War had the additional challenge of analyzing the events that led to a large number of IS-3Ms being captured intact after being abandoned by their Egyptian crews. The Egyptian Army's 125th Tank Brigade was equipped with 60 IS-3Ms deployed in defensive positions in the el Kultilla area. After fighting against the advancing Israelis, many Egyptian tank crews abandoned their fully operational IS-3Ms and scattered in the desert. This desperate action had nothing to do with the capabilities of the tanks. It was in fact all about poor training, low skill level, and lack of motivation in those Egyptian tank units. At war's end, the Israelis had destroyed some 16 IS-3Ms and captured about 30. Some sources put the combined total of IS-3M losses as high as 73. Finally, as previously mentioned, the Israelis were very aware of the IS-3M's capabilities and they understood that their 90mm tank guns probably wouldn't be able to penetrate the armor of the Egyptian heavy tanks. Prior to the war, the Israelis launched an upgrade program that added the powerful 105mm main gun to many of their Centurion and M48 tanks. The fighting in the Rafah junction area included one company of M48s in the entire Israeli army that had their 90mm main guns replaced by the new 105mm main guns. While this tank company was very successful during the Six-Day War and was decorated by Tal, the classified photographs showing the results from live fire testing done in Israel after the war tell an interesting story. During this testing, captured Egyptian IS-3M's were repeatedly fired on and hit by 105mm armor-piercing discarding sabot ammunition without the tank's frontal armor being penetrated. In many ways, the IS-3 heavy tank represents one of the very first shots of the Cold War. It certainly came as a big surprise to all those who saw it and to the countries it was intended to impress or intimidate were compelled into action. Increasingly negative reviews as more was learned about the IS-3 only put the tank's potential adversaries into the dangerous position of underestimating this important Soviet tank. United States and NATO focus on learning as much about the Soviet weapons systems as possible, was constantly challenged by persistent naysayers who continued to report that Soviet tanks and the technology they represented were truly not a threat. The Cold War years can be characterized by the massive efforts expanded, in some cases not so successfully, obviously, to get these assessments right. And historic examples include the struggle to correctly identify the T-64 and T-72 main battle tanks, which I'll also speak about in the future, trying to confirm the Soviet intent around which weapon systems participated in Red Square parades. Then again, their new sarmat tank, kind of, you know, didn't do that well there, but still. NATO and United States analysts also tried very hard to determine the relationship between the Soviet export weapons and those not intended for export. And that's another cool story for another whole episode. But yeah, you need to analyze all these things and... It's kind of a, kind of a weird thing if you think about it, because even though the tank was very much underestimated, what else do we underestimate today? One thing, though, is that uh, at this moment Russian generals are often yelling at Putin's regime for ruining the army, and for basically making the army much weaker than it was before. However, as the IS-3 tank has shown, it can be effective... Tool and the modifications that modern Russian tanks have and everything, it can be an effective tool of warfare if it is used correctly and by skilled pilots. But that's the issue here. Russia has a conscription army, and your average tank pilot there has about one year of training in, because the term is just one year, and then it's kind of hard to you know for people even to kind of stay there and there populations like half of that of the United States, too. So, the main thing is, don't underestimate tanks, and truly, even though this tank was a beast, well, sometimes you can shoot it in the sides and do some interesting things. Frontally, using brute force, well... Sometimes even using enough brute force is not enough. And that about completes today's episode. We'll uh, maybe talk about politics next time, but I want to give a special episode fully again to Gorbachev because, you know, he just recently turned 90 and it's been 30 years since he stopped being the president of the USSR. So I want to do an episode again like that. And uh, thanks to all the Patreons, and please join us in Facebook groups, and on Twitter, and everywhere else. And do Tavareshi. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv. And we'll rummage even to The Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.